Thank you, choir. That was beautiful. That was beautiful. Now hurry up and get changed so you won't miss any of the sermon. Well, it looks kind of empty out here when they're all up here. It's a little discouraging. Good morning and happy Sabbath. Uh, We're doing something a little different today, and we're going to be introducing not only the sermon, but the sermon series as well through the screens on either side. So if you just turn your attention to the video that's about to play. The first part is an actual clip from my wife's favorite television program, It's on home and garden television, for those of you who get that network, called Fixer Upper. Well, we got the video. We don't have any audio. I'm not sure what's happening here. We may have to restart the sermon. Barbara, do you have any advice for me? Not yet. Yes, if we have audio. We're Chip and Joanna Gaines. Today's demo day. We take the worst house in the best neighborhood and we turn it into our client's dream home. Hi, I'm Dan Solis for the Home to the Garden series, where God takes the worst life in the worst neighborhood, gives a better life and a dream home. We are beginning a series today. I'll be preaching four times throughout the year. And it's called the Home to the Garden series. How we get from your home and mine to the Garden of Eden restored. Four installments. This is the first one. So as we begin, I'd like to invite you to just pause for a moment with me as we pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful that we are here this morning to worship you in your house. We're thankful for the love that we have felt throughout the week, the hope that you give us from day to day, the promise of a world where there's no cancer, there's no death, there's no tears, there's no sorrow. Not that we deserve it, just because of your love, and we can't thank you enough. In Jesus' name, amen. God takes the worst life in the worst neighborhood, gives a better life, and a dream home. Can you say amen? I want to start with the story of a friend of mine. His name is Richard. Richard and I met 
in Greenville, Mississippi many years ago. I was a young pastor then, and Richard was a recently released convict. He was 44 years old at the time. He had spent 22 years of that, exactly half, in the state penitentiary. You see a picture of it here on the screen. That is one of the worst penitentiaries in the entire United States. As a matter of fact, Tate Reeves, who is now the governor of Mississippi, just last month on the 27th, closed down a portion of that prison because it is so notoriously bad. Already into this year, 12 deaths at Parchment, the main prison for the state of Mississippi. And this is where Richard had lived for 22 years of his life. Now, he was in there for murder. I don't know exactly how he committed the murder. I don't like to go into details or ask nosy questions. But he never mentioned a weapon, never mentioned a knife, never mentioned a gun, told me that it happened in a bar. He was six foot three, 260 pounds. And I just imagined in my mind that he got in a barroom fight and with his bare fists stopped someone's life. In there for 22 years. He got out of prison. I was a young pastor. I was holding my first evangelistic crusade. When you're the pastor, a young pastor in a small church, you do everything. You do the sermon, you do the printing, you do the inviting, you do the child care, if you can, or your wife does. And you're the transportation committee, too. Some friends of mine who were call porters came in, and they, they just fanned out across the city, and they passed out the invitations, and Richard got one. He had only been in town a day or two. He called the phone number. He said, I want to come, but I need a ride. Well, I couldn't find anybody. You'll have to remember, we were a small church, mostly older ladies. Didn't think it was appropriate to send them out to pick up a murderer. So I picked him up myself, right at the bar where he was living, and brought him to the church. At the conclusion of that series, he was the only person, except for two or three young people that I'd been studying with already, who became a member of the church. I was so thankful for that baptistry. It was a small church. They had a homemade baptistry. It was the deepest baptistry that I have ever baptized in. You could get the water almost all the way up to my shoulders. Now I'm kind of short, so maybe that's not saying much, but when you have to lower a person that is six feet three, in other words, seven inches taller than you are, and weighs almost twice as much as you do, it's helpful to have that water up high. Now Richard was a true convert, but he wasn't perfect, and he made some mistakes. When you're on parole, you can't afford to make mistakes. So after he'd been at the bar for a little while, he found another job. We were all thankful for that, working in the shipyards. Now the shipyards will promise you all kinds of money. And all kinds of things. And one of the things that they promised was, you just stay with us 
And at Christmas time and, and into the new year, you'll get a big bonus. Well, they do that because they know they're planning to lay everybody off before Christmas time. And then no one will be working at that time. And it happened year after year, and Richard was mad. So was everybody else. But Richard made the mistake of making a phone call to the shipyard office and making a threat. Very shortly after that, the police were over at his house, picked him up, sent him back to prison. We stayed in touch for a while. I'll never forget the last letter that I received from him. He said, Pastor Dan, there's been a tragedy in our home. Four young people, I found out later between the ages of 18 and 22, broke into our house and killed my father, his 82-year-old father. Oh, you know it, and I know it. Old people, they don't trust the banks. They put all their cash in the mattress. That's what these young people thought. Well, he had $20 at home. And they thought, well, dead men don't turn you in. They can't identify you at a trial. And so they killed him. For the love of $20, they killed a helpless man. I was angry. I, I love my dad. He's going to be 99 this year, by the way. Isn't that amazing? Talk about the benefits of the Adventist lifestyle. Wow. I mean, he still lives in his own home. It's pretty, pretty great. Anyway, back to the story. The next part of the letter is the part that I will never forget. Richard said, I want you to pray for those four young people that they will find Jesus Christ as their Savior and be ready for heaven. There was a man whose life changed and what changed his life if you asked Richard today what changed your life Richard he would point you to one book called the book of books the Bible because when he was in prison he didn't have much else to do and someone donated a Bible to the prison probably the Gideons God bless the Gideons and he read that Bible cover to cover and he found Jesus Christ in those pages. And in those pages of the Bible, we find eternal life. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians. I'm sorry, we're going to start with Romans. Romans chapter 15. And we're going to look at what the Scriptures say about itself. Romans chapter 15, verse 4. Such things were written in the Scriptures long ago to teach us. And the Scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promise to be fulfilled. 
John chapter 5, verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. The scriptures point to me. You see, the Bible is a record of God speaking. It's a record of God communicating with us. In the, New, uh, excuse me, the Old Testament alone, there are 361 references that say this is the utterance of the Lord. There are 445 more that say, thus says the Lord. God is speaking through the pages of the Bible. He's trying to reach out to you. He's trying to reach out to me. As he reached to the people of ancient times, he's reaching, reaching, reaching. Turn turn with me now to the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 17. Matthew 5, 17. These are the words of Jesus himself. And he says, don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. Now, the law of Moses and the writings of the prophets were the way that they referenced the Bible, the Old Testament as we know it, in their times. Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with them. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I came to fulfill them. So Jesus had the utmost respect For this book, the Bible, he endorsed it and he lived by it. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16, words that we probably memorized in vacation Bible school. All scripture is inspired by God and it is useful to teach us what is true to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It comes to us when we are wrong and it teaches us what to do that is right. Now you'll notice in the corner of the screen today, you'll see little uh, numbers. Those are the page references to your pew Bible. And the reason that I do that is you can see it on the screen, but I'd like for you to look it up for yourself. It's just a good habit. You know, when Paul was preaching, Paul, the writer of 14 books of the New Testament, The people in his time didn't just take his word for it. You'd think, he's a Bible writer, of course we're going to take his word for it. No, they went home and they looked it up for themselves to make sure that Paul was not leading them down the wrong path. And if Paul needs to be checked out, I promise you this pastor needs to be checked out. So look up the verses for yourselves. 2 Peter chapter 1 Verses 20 and 21 tell us that no prophecy, absolutely none, no prophecy ever came from the prophet's own understanding. The Bible tells us that it's not from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke. And what they spoke was from God. So this is a book like no other. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. 
The Bible tells us, for the word of God is alive. It's alive. It's powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword. It cuts between the soul and the spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. The Bible is a unique book, unlike any other. It is a record of God's communication with us, shared through select spokespersons. Jesus, Jesus accepted as well as endorsed this story of God's love through the transforming power of the Bible that changes lives. This is a unique book. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to meet Bob Harrington. He is the designated chaplain of Bourbon Street down in New Orleans, Louisiana. Mayor Victor Skiro uh, designated him as the official chaplain of one of the worst places on the planet. A skeptic came up to Bob and he said, do you really think that Jesus turned water into wine? Do you believe in miracles? And Bob, with a hardly a second's thought, said, you think that's a miracle? I've seen God do bigger miracles. I've seen him turn winos into preachers. You see, the big miracles of the Bible aren't parting the Red Sea turning water into wine. The big miracle of the Bible is that God's Spirit, through His Word, can get inside this stony heart and change it. Get inside this stony heart and just destroy it and then put a live beating heart inside. We're talking this morning about a power tool. This is a power tool. Power tools can either affect great good or create substantial damage. That's right. I've seen a lot of people use this book the wrong way. They think it's a hammer. They like to go beat up on people. They got these special verses. Oh, you're not doing that. You're not doing that. You're not doing that. You're going to you know where. Or it can change lives because it is powerful. Now, if something's powerful, you have to be very careful and skilled in how you use it. So let's compare two saws. The first one is one like I have at home. It's a bow saw. You can cut down little trees with it. Very efficient. You can also cut yourself with it. I've done that. That little thing can make a pretty nasty scar in just a couple of seconds. But, you know, you treat it, you wash it off, you disinfect it, you put a bandage on it, you're probably not going to lose your arm. Now, let's look at the next saw. This is a power tool. This is a chainsaw. This thing can take off your leg in a split second if you're not careful. That's why at Adventist Community Services Disaster Response, we don't underwrite chainsaw gangs. 
We're not against people using chainsaws. It's not immoral. It's a good thing. But it's very expensive to insure. The point that I'm making is, if that is something is power-driven, we need to be very careful in how it's used. This is a power tool. Let's be careful in how we use the Bible. We begin, when we study the Bible, with prayer. Why? A lot of you know that I assist at the academy with our young people in the running program, track and field events. Uh, One of my certifications happens to be in pole vault. I'm a pole vault, a Washington State pole vault certified instructor. Now, I've looked at videos, how to train vaulters, how to keep it safe, read books, articles, but you know what? When you get to talk face-to-face with a pole vaulter, a master pole vaulter, people that have done it for years, people that know how to do it correctly, it's so much more informative for them to just come and show you how to do what needs to be done. We have a powerful book, and we serve a powerful Lord who says we can come to him anytime, day or night, And he will show us the way. That's why we always begin our study of the Bible with prayer. Now, how do we interpret the Bible? I want to use a simple illustration. We're going to use the word trunk. Now, I want you to get a visual image in your mind of a trunk. Okay, if you don't have a visual image of a trunk in your mind, raise your hand. I knew nobody. Oh, somebody actually did. I wasn't expecting that. All right, how do you know what a trunk is? Well, if we're talking about animals, and you thought of an elephant, that's your trunk. But what if you were thinking about your car? Oh, well, that's another kind of trunk. Or maybe at this time of year, you're switching out your winter clothes for your spring clothes, and you put your old clothes into the trunk. Or perhaps you're thinking chainsaw, because I just mentioned it, and it's a tree trunk. Or it's getting warmer, and you can't wait to go swimming, so we have swimming trunks. So how do you know which kind of trunk is your trunk? You study it in the context. You study it in context. So what do we mean by that? Well, let me use a puzzle as an illustration. So when you get a puzzle, the easiest parts to identify are the ones with those two square edges. They're going to go in the corner. So you find what is obvious first, and then you build a framework around it. The next thing you probably will do is you'll get the other pieces that have straight edges to connect on the outside. And then, once you have connected the edges and you have a framework to build with, the next thing you might do is supply the other pieces. And I say that these are different kinds of questions that you ask the Bible. 
And you can remember them as the six W's. Where? Where did it happen? Why did it happen? Who did it? When did it happen? What happened? And then, whoa. And you're asking, well, what kind of question is that? Well, that's a mirror question. Because if you put whoa in the mirror, you'll find the word how. I just had to make it all six W's. I couldn't do five W's and an H. I just didn't like that. So you ask these different questions of your text as you fill in and find the interpretation of what God is trying to say. Begin with the obvious, build a framework, and then ask your questions. Now I want to offer an illustration of someone who didn't do that. And it's about a Christmas tree. And I want to preface this to let you know that I had the highest respect admiration and love for this person. I was probably about a 17-year-old, just had learned how to drive, needed excuses so I could get the family car, and I would tell my dad, you know, I want to get the car so I can go visit Gladys. Gladys was a beautiful Christian, loved Jesus. She had been a Pentecostal until she learned about the Seventh-day Sabbath. Then she became a Seventh-day Adventist. And I love to go and visit with her because she's always glowing about Jesus, telling me what Jesus has done in her life. Okay, so Gladys gave me some instruction from Jeremiah chapter 10. So you may want to look this up in your Bible. Jeremiah chapter 10. Now, here on the screen, we have it in the King James where it says, Thus saith the Lord, learn not the path of the heathen, be not dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the heathen are dismayed at them, for the customs of the people are vain. So who are we talking about? The heathen, that's right, and their customs. What customs were we talking about? The last part of verse 3. Oh, look at that, that winter scene. One cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workman with an axe. And then what do we do with it when we bring it home? They deck it with silver and with gold. And she was convinced that it was a sin against God to have a Christmas tree. Now, was she right? She was sincere. Does that make her right? Does being sincere make one right? No, it doesn't. We have to learn to interpret the Bible the way the Bible wants it to be interpreted, the way the prophet thought about it. So what was the prophet saying? Well, he was speaking about idolatry. So people would go out, they'd chop down a tree, they'd get a sec cut out a section of it, carve it into an idol, and then they would deck it with gold. Now, if he'd asked, if she'd asked some of the right questions, she probably wouldn't have been tempted to interpret it that way. For example, when did Jeremiah write the book? That's a chronology question. 
Well, you study your biblical history, about 600 B.C. What's B.C. stand for? Before Christ. They weren't celebrating Christmas. Christ hadn't even been born. Wouldn't be born for another 600 years. If she'd known that, she probably wouldn't have just taken these words out of context and created a doctrine out of it. So learn the context. It, it will keep us from so many, many different errors. Now here's another one. Gets a little closer to home because you can find this one in Adventist books. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Again, uh, quoting from the, the King James. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and ye are not your own. Good verse. We should keep our physical being healthy. But then often, it's been coupled with these verses from earlier in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. So we put those two verses together and we draw the obvious conclusion, if you destroy your body with alcohol and with drugs, then God is going to destroy you with eternal punishment. Wait just a minute. Is the temple... In 1 Corinthians 6, the same as the temple in 1 Corinthians 3. We have to study them in their context. In 1 Corinthians 6, it's talking about the individual and may refer to their physical being. However, if you study the context of 1 Corinthians 3, the temple is the collective group of people that we call the body of Christ or the church. What 1 Corinthians 3 is teaching us is that if we divide God's church, if we split it up over silly minutiae and, and man-made doctrines, God is going to destroy us for eternity. Now that's a serious message. And sometimes we miss that because we misapply this verse to 1 Corinthians 6. So, again, we need to study and learn to have our message and our doctrines in context. So how do we do this? First suggestion, get the big picture. Don't wander around in the little details. You know, when you buy a puzzle, you get a box. And on the cover of the box is a picture of what you're going to be putting together. You see the picture, gives you the idea of what you're going to be doing, what you're going to be looking for. If you don't have the big picture when you're studying Scripture, you're going to get off in this tangent and that tangent and every other tangent conceivable. Years ago, I worked for a fine gentleman named Mervyn Maxwell. You see him pictured here. You also see a book that he wrote. In fact, it was a series of two books entitled God cares. Now, I was building cabinets for Dr. Maxwell, and I was forever thankful for the book that he was writing. He was so busy writing the book, 
he couldn't build the cabinets for his father's books. His father had passed away. Uncle Arthur, you've all read them. And so he didn't have time to do it. He was writing the books, so he hired me to do it. So I was very thankful. But one of, the day, one of those days, actually on multiple occasions, when I was working for him, I'd come up from the basement where I was working in the shop, and I would find Dr. Maxwell. He wasn't expecting me to come up then. I'd find him on his knees. I'd find him in prayer. I'd find him tears rolling down his cheeks. And I knew that he was close to Jesus. That Jesus was his best friend. And you know, when he wrote the book on Revelation and wrote the book on Daniel, he didn't specialize in all the small details. He didn't create little offshoot doctrines. He said, what are these books all about? And when he boiled it down, the message of Daniel, the message of Revelation is God cares. And the point that I'm trying to make is if we're close to Jesus, we won't be tempted to go off on all these little tangents. When we're close to Jesus, we look for the central and main themes of Scripture. The Scriptures are about life and love, living and loving. And if your doctrinal framework doesn't center on those two things, find another one, please. Now, here's some other tips for, in, uh, for interpreting the Scripture. Uh, identify the literary types. There are all kinds of literature in the Bible. There are Proverbs. There's poetry. There's historical books. There are letters or correspondence. There are all kinds of things. And if you try to interpret one the way another should be interpreted, you're going to come up with a really, really funny message. And also, trace the themes as well as the chronology of the Scripture that you are reading. But once you have mastered that big picture, it's so much fun to get into the details. Now, this past summer, my wife and I had the privilege of going up to Canada to Bouchard Gardens. If you haven't been there, put it on your bucket list, please. This is, this is just a dim reflection of what it is like to really be there. And if you've been there, you know that there's an upper ridge where you can look down from where this picture was taken. But once you've seen that big picture, it just puts a desire in your heart to go down there and see it up close. You get down there and you can see the flower almost face to face. That's what we're talking about now, going from the big picture to the details. Now, Isaiah 28, verse 10. You've read it. You've, you've heard it many times. We are to study the Bible precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little and there a little. Now we're talking about the details that make up Scripture. How do we study the details? Well, first of all, you want to identify your key words, the phrases that come into the Bible over and over again. Note the conclusions, the contrast, the comparisons. Conduct word studies and study the historical backgrounds. And I'm going to share with you 
some of the books from my library that I found most helpful. One is the New Testament background commentary. And on the other side of our list there is the Old Testament background commentary. What I like about this particular commentary is it's not, it's not trying to uh, teach a specific doctrine or give a specific teaching. It simply gives you the historical background for particular passages and chapters in the Bible. For example, if you're studying about the ten virgins in Matthew chapter 25, you can go to the background commentary. It will tell you about marriage customs of the time. So helpful in understanding the Bible. Then there's Vine's Expository Dictionary where you can go and find specific words and study and trace their meaning through history and through usage. And then two concordances. A concordance is a listing of the various words in the Bible. And you think, I think I heard the preacher say that, but I can only remember two or three words. How do I find it? You can go to a concordance like Strong's or Young's. I believe these are the two best in the English language. And there, you can not only find out what the preacher said, but you can find out what Greek word or what Hebrew word or what Aramaic word, what the original language word was and get more out of its meaning. Principles of interpretation. Things should be understood to be literal unless they're obviously otherwise. For example, figures of speech, which we've already talked about. Here's some of the figures of speech in the Bible. Uh, first, Revelation 1.14, a simile. Jesus had eyes like flames. No, they weren't literally burning. This is a simile. John chapter 15, verse 5. I am the vine. A metaphor. Now, some people go to the Bible and they take everything literally. There are churches that will tell you that when you go to take communion... And you pick up that piece of bread, it turns into the real flesh of Jesus. That makes you a cannibal, right? Instead of seeing the obvious that this is a metaphor, Jesus says, I am the bread. If we believe it's not a metaphor, here in John 15, verse 5, we'd have to say that, well, Jesus is really a tree. No, it's a metaphor. Exaggeration. Matthew 23, verse 24, Jesus talks about straining gnats and swallowing camels. Was anybody really swallowing camels? Certainly not Jesus. Camels are unclean meat. Personification. Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 12, the trees clapped the mountains sang. Other places in the Psalms, the mountains shout. And then finally, irony. 1 Kings chapter 22. The prophet was brought in before the king. The king says, tell me what the Lord is saying. And the prophet just makes it up. He lies. He makes up something. 
Because he knows if he tells the king the truth, he'll probably get his head chopped off. And the king knows the man's lying. Finally, he threatens him. He says, tell me the truth or I'll cut your head off. Or something like that. And then the prophet told him the truth. What he said at first was spoken in irony. So we need to learn the figures of speech as we approach our study of the Bible. Here are some special instructions regarding the study of parables. In a parable, you want to ask why. Why is this parable here? We should let the Bible explain the parable. Now, Acts chapter 10 is not usually considered to be a parable, but it's a good illustration of letting the Bible explain the Bible. So here in Acts chapter 10, we have the story of this sheet. Peter is uh, sleeping, and he gets this vision of this sheet just coming down onto the rooftop where he's resting. And it's got Komodo dragons in it and lizards and all kinds of stuff that almost nobody would consider eating. And he hears a voice, take and eat. Now I have a friend named John. At the time that we were traveling together, he was a pastor at a Presbyterian church, and we were discussing the health habits of Seventh-day Adventists. And he brought up this passage, but he said, what do you do with Acts chapter 10? Because in Acts chapter 10 it says that Peter was told to get up and eat anything. Doesn't that show that all those Old Testament rules have been done away with? And I said, did you read verse 34? Verse 34 is the biblical interpretation of the passage. Where Peter says, oh, then I understood that I should not call any human, any person unclean. God wasn't saying Go out and eat your Komodo dragons if you want to. No. He was saying, treat everybody with respect. So that's something that we need to realize when we're studying the parables. Uh, identify the central idea. The sanctuary has been described as a physical parable of the plan of salvation. When I was studying at Southern, one of my professors had done uh, a workshop on the sanctuary. And some dear sister raised her hand and said, Brother Holbrook, what do you think the silver sockets mean? As though every little detail of the sanctuary had a specific spiritual meaning. And when we do this, we lose focus on what God is really trying to tell us. Uh, don't expect every detail to have a specific meaning and view these things in the light of Bible times. Now, there are also some special instructions regarding allegories. So I want to get on to this. How do we interpret the allegories? Well, outline the features and the symbols in the allegory. 
Again, note the biblical interpretation. In Galatians chapters, uh, chapter 4, verses 24 to 31, it gives an interpretation of the allegory in verses 22 and 23. So, don't just make up stuff. Don't teach fanciful interpretations of unexplained details. And don't assign meaning to all of the features. And finally, and very important for Seventh-day Adventists and other students of apocalyptic prophecy, are these recommendations. Remember that the prophecies are not always written in chronological order. Also, interpret literally unless the grammar indicates otherwise. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 7, it's clear that the beasts are not animals because it says the beast are four kings or nations or kingdoms. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. Now you can get way off in left field if you don't follow that instruction. In fact, as I was preparing the sermon, I thought of an NFL, that's National Football League interpretation for Daniel 7 and 8. The Bears, that's Chicago. The Lions, that's Detroit. The Ram of Daniel 8, that's LA. And the Saints are from, you don't have any football fans here, New Orleans. And where is the papacy in this? The Arizona Cardinals. See, you can go, come up with all kinds of crazy stuff. And people do. And you think that's a little funny, but I've seen people come up with stuff that's just about as bad, and they meant it. So we have to be careful as we study the apocalypse. Some other things. Future events are not always in the future tense. Prophets do not always know the meaning of the prophecies that they've received. Daniel in chapters uh, 7 and 8 and 9 are a key example of this. And then finally, remember that the New Testament symbols are often built upon the Old Testament symbols. But after it's all said and done, then we know what the Bible says. Do we know what the Bible means? When we've gone to the work to find out what the prophet meant, do we apply it to our own lives? You see, there has to be a transmission of power. Now, in a car, we have a transmission because we may have this supercharged engine in the front, but if we can't get that power from the engine to the wheels, it's virtually worthless. So we have to get that power to where the rubber meets the road. There is also a spiritual transmission of power. From the Holy Spirit, through the Bible, into your life and mine. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of of God. Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 26 and I will give you a new heart 
and I will put a new spirit within you. I'll take out that old stony, stubborn heart, and I'll give you a tender, responsive heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old is gone. It's gone. It's gone. And a new life has begun. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22. Throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. And verse 23. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Friends, if you're looking for a life that is changed, that is happy, that is hopeful, I recommend this book. If you're discouraged, lost your job this week, wife left you, your kids won't talk with you, things aren't going right at work, this book will give you hope. It will give you encouragement. It will share God's love in God's life, and it will give you power to go through the storm. I want to sing about this book, and I want you to take your hymnals and turn to hymn number 272. 272. And we'll, we'll not need the organ for this. Okay, just wanted to make sure there. This classic hymn, Give Me the Bible. I'm going to share another song. Simple ballad, Word of God Speak. And then when I get to the song, we'll all join in together. I'm finding myself at a loss for words And the funny thing is, it's okay The last thing I need is to be heard But to hear what you would say Word of God speak, would you pour down like rain Washing my eyes to see your majesty to be still and know that you're in this place. Please let me stay and rest in your holiness. Word of God, speak. Finding myself in the midst of you, beyond the music, 
beyond the noise. All that I need is to be with you in the quiet. Hear your voice, word of God speak. Would you pour down like rain, washing my eyes to see your majesty, to be still and know that you're in this place. Please let me stay and rest in your holiness, word of God speak. Give me the Bible when my heart is broken. Sin and grief have filled my soul with fear. Give me the precious words by Jesus spoken. Hold a face lamp to show my Savior near. Give me the Bible, holy message shining. Thy light shall guide me in the narrow way. Precept and promise, law and love combining, till night shall vanish in eternal day. Father in heaven, let the Bible live in us. Let your love live in us. Fill us with your life an adventure of walking with you day by day. Fill us with your holiness. Bring us to obedience to your will. Make us one with you. In Jesus' name.